This is episode number 97 with Ultra Queen Stacey Shand, Badwater, Ultraman, Double Anvil, and the mindset behind being an ultra endurance athlete. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high performance life, spending the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Especially the ebbs and flows. That's what's so fun and kind of crazy about ultra marathoning or ultra endurance events. You will go into these segments where you're like, okay, how much longer am I going to feel like this? Because you're going through whatever and it's holding on. And then in a half hour, you'll totally forget that you were even there. And I'm really excited about today's guest because it's with a friend of mine, Stacey Shand. And you've also heard her in a previous episode whenever we did our heat training series. So she is not a stranger to the show. Stacey Shan might be the most experienced ultra athlete on the planet, seriously. Not only has she ran over 100 marathons, and she did that in one year, but she has raced Ironman triathlons, podiumed at Ultraman, she's done bad water twice, she's won double Ironman triathlons, and taken overall fastest times on running segments, like faster than any of the men as well. She's raced a road bike for 508 miles straight at the Silver Stage 508. She's done races in the Arctic Circle. She's ran for seven days through volcanoes in Costa Rica. And she's also done the Marathon de Sab in the Sahara Desert. I'm exhausted just beginning to discuss her race resume. Stacy, aka Racy Stacy, is just a wealth of knowledge and shares her secrets of dealing with extremes, the importance of meticulous preparation, being a female in an ultra sport, and she even talked about her shoes melting at the Badwater 135, arguably the toughest ultra running event on the planet. The crazy thing about Stacy is whenever you meet her, she's just so nice and so friendly, and she is this crazy badass and you wouldn't know it because she wouldn't go around telling you how awesome she is. She would just be this amazing, nice person that you met. And once you started talking to her, you would start realizing through just asking her questions, all the things that she's done and what an amazing life experience she's had so far. And the thing that I love about Stacey is that she's never complacent and she doesn't want to do the same thing over and over. As you can hear from her resume that we just talked about, she's done lots of different types of sports in the ultra discipline. And a lot of us kind of get stuck doing one thing. And I definitely am guilty of that. And I, I know a lot of other people are too, because it is hard to switch to sports disciplines and it takes a lot of dedication and research and just bravery to do that. So I'm really excited to introduce to you guys, Stacey Shand. Another thing that we talked about in this is how not to quit. And I think that with ultra sports in general, quitting becomes something that I don't want to say it's easier to do, but the longer the race goes, the harder it gets. And you would see that attrition rates in longer races tend to be higher. So the shorter the race, it seems like people don't quit as much. But as the race draws on, there's all these different things that could happen, both physically and mentally, that could just stop you from going forward. And speaking of ultra races, I just finished the Cape Epic, an eight-day mountain bike stage race in South Africa. And I'm looking forward to telling you guys all about that in a couple of weeks. 
I also have some new sock designs that are going to be coming out for the spring and Moxie and Grit, which is my apparel brand. I think you guys are really going to like them. I have a free bi-weekly email newsletter. And to be honest, it's probably more like once every three to four weeks where I send an email. So I won't be clogging up your inbox, but I try to make sure that whenever I send an email, there is useful and interesting information in it. So if you want to sign up, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, and I'll be sending out some really fun things, especially as we are progressing through the summer and I'm able to get back outside on my bike. I basically was on the trainer with a few different breaks. I I went away for for Christmas and I did a couple of like one day races in the desert, but I was on the trainer from end of October when I broke my foot through the beginning of March. So I'm hoping that whenever I get home, all the snow will be gone. And I'm sure that I'll be on the trainer a little bit for some key workouts, but I can't wait to get outside on the mountain bike. I miss the trails and I can't wait to see all of the new flowers that are just popping out of the ground. Don't forget to hit subscribe if you are new to the show and you want to catch other episodes. This is a weekly podcast, so if you hit subscribe, you get a notification of new episodes. And also, if you're enjoying the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the show with your friends. Take a screenshot, post to social media, tag us, tag Stacy. We love seeing that you guys are getting a lot out of the show and that you're enjoying it. And lastly, if you want to support my work financially, I have a Patreon site, which is a crowdfunding website for keeping the show going, helping it grow, helping it stay as a weekly podcast. And it is a patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And you can donate as little as $4 a month and four bucks a month multiplied by several different listeners makes a big difference for the show. I also want to thank my podcast producer, Aroma, who has been with us since episode one, making sure that this podcast sounds really good for the final product. And to my assistant, Tina, who is helping us get such amazing guests on the show and your support on Patreon also helps support them. So thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate it. And here is Stacey Shand. Hey, Stacey. Hello. How are you? Good. It's so fun to be doing an in-person interview and you and I hang out as friends all the time. So to be able to do like a podcast and maybe learn even some new things about you is going to be super fun. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So I first met you whenever you moved to the Okanagan and my friend's girlfriend and was like, wow, like this chick is a crazy badass. Like she does (laughs) stuff that I can't even imagine. And I want to get into all those things. But how did you become an athlete? Because my understanding was you weren't an athlete growing up. Right, exactly. I was one of like probably the least active people you would know growing up. I guess like I was, you know, kind of pulled more towards the creative side, like arts. And I was really into writing and literature, all that kind of stuff and music and not so much into sports like at all. So to give you a frame of reference, in high school, the only class that I would ever skip was gym class. Like I hated being physically active in front of other people. I felt like you were constantly like being put on the spot and not judged for like how I wanted to be judged or what I wanted to be judged for. And so, yeah, I was totally inactive. And then after high school, just not living like the healthiest of lifestyles, you know, like I think I got it. I did a, smoked, I drank, I, you know, did all those things that like first year university students do. And, and it wasn't until actually I was in a car accident at the beginning of my second year of university that kind of like shook things for me. It was on sort of an interstate sort of freeway that goes through the city and the speed would be in kilometers, 210 kilometers an hour. So 
like and in the 60s for those of you who are in miles per hour. Yeah. We were actually like, go, we were carpooling. I was carpooling with a friend. So I was sitting in the front passenger seat and there was actually a train crossing on this highway and there was a truck stopped and the driver of the car I was in without even touching the brakes, like right into the back of him. So they said we hit him at 107 kilometers an hour. And so my, the seat I was in, I was in like a really old Honda Civic, like a two-door Honda Civic, you know, where you'd have to like fold the seat over to let your friends in the back. And so my seat just came right off the track. Like my seat left the vehicle basically. And I went right into the dashboard. And so I remember like sort of waking up and like my knees, I could feel the engine fluid, everything all over my knees and legs. I couldn't see my legs. I was just part of the dashboard. And I was just like, oh my goodness, like I'm really screwed right now. Like this is not a good thing. And going to the hospital and being in the hospital was just one of those like life-changing moments because they're kind of running through all your injuries. And here I am, 18 years old, and I'm like, I had 100% going up to today. And now I won't have 100% ever again. What kind of injuries did you have? I really wrecked my right knee. It would require two surgeries. I had injured part of my spine. I had plastic throughout both my legs, but a lot of it was at that right knee. Like I think just the way she hit that right knee went further and really, really got messed up in that dashboard. And so like right then and there, the promise I made to myself was that whatever I had left after this, whether it was like 70% of my knee after the surgeries, I was going to take and use 100% of that 70%. And it was just this full-on like realization that I had no connection to my body whatsoever up to that date. Like it was just something, I never even thought of it. Like I just lived life and went through the process, but like I had no connection. And now here I was feeling tons of pain, having tons of issues, you know, like back, neck, legs, you know, all of these things. And I knew I had about a five-year road ahead of me of rehabilitation. And I was like, okay, whatever's going to come out of this, it's going to be like, good. I'm going to become like stronger, more connected to my body. I'm going to use this thing like the gift that it is versus totally just be unaware of how lucky we are to have what we have, right? Physically. So that's really interesting because a lot of times when something bad happens to somebody, they're not always positive about it. So you were able to take this situation and turn it into a growth situation, but you were 18 years old. So yeah. where did you, where did you learn that mindset? I mean, I was always fascinated with learning. That's one thing like about me is that I'm a lifelong learner. Like, I love to learn. I love to get into specifics and details and just have unique experiences overall. Like I've never quite taken the traditional path and sort of anything that I was doing up to that moment as fiercely independent as well. So, I mean, this just was a challenge and I was like ready to take on a challenge, right? Like throughout even say in a couple of years previous to that, like I was on my own starting at 15 because of challenges that I was setting for myself. I really wanted to get into university early because I had this goal of getting two degrees by 22, right? Like, so I was always setting these types of like (laughs) things, right? And so this became one of those things. I'm like, okay, I got two surgeries on my knee and about six months in between each surgery. Now, like, this is what I'm going to do to attack this. I'm going to have a plan that, you know, at that point throughout that process, like I said, it took about five years getting to the point where I could walk without support. And then I had cane for a little while. And then to the point where I could do without, you know, just a brace. And then was in physio, starting swimming and biking as part of physio. 
and then a walking routine. And then from there, I was like, okay, on my 25th birthday, I'm going to do my very first 5K. And then I researched and read everything I could about like <laughs> becoming an athlete and doing my first like 5K in the smartest possible way. Because once again, it was a learning process. And the one thing I didn't want to do is have a setback and end up injured and having more pain and problems, right? My whole goal was to take full advantage of what I did have and not be sent backwards. And did your friend group change while you were going through this transformation? Yeah, totally. It totally did. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't a quick transformation, right? Like it really did take five years. And then through that, learning how to run and all of that process, right? But it certainly did change a lot of the the people that I hung around with and what their focus was, right? Because I was kind of on this trajectory of learning and getting to know myself and my strengths. And whenever you're learning about running and about doing a 5K, as a non-athlete to an athlete, yeah. like that's a lot to learn. Yeah. So what was the most important thing that you learned that really helped you with your first 5K? The biggest thing, I mean, and it ended up impacting sort of how I was as an athlete for the rest of my life is, was cross-training. And because I had done sort of in-depth physio and they had given me a lot of strength in swimming and cycling workouts because they wanted ones that were non-weight-bearing for quite a while, right? So then when I started actually getting to the point where I was walking and then built that into a run, then I was never just a runner. I always had the cycling and the swimming to really counteract whatever I was doing just with the running. And so I've just always cross-trained. Like I've always done a minimum of those three sports ever since I sort of became, you know, mm -hmm. became an athlete. And I think too is like, really listening to your body. Like I am pretty like anal about listening to my body and paying so much attention to what's happening and what cues it's giving me because of the fact that I never wanted a setback. And to this day, I've never been injured because of anything I did in training or in sport. And we're going to get into some of the amazing feats that Stacy has done. And that's an incredible statement because the majority of us have had overuse injuries and, and injuries just from not training properly. So that's awesome. Yeah, I'm stoked about it. That's for sure. And why did you choose running? If you're already doing a triathlon type of training, why did you choose running as your first endeavor? Oh, actually, I saw a half marathon that was going through the city I was living in at the time. And I was so inspired. They just looked like they were having so much fun and just this like freedom while they were running. And I was like, I really, really, really got to try that out. And even at that point, I never even thought of the fact that you could really like compete in cycling or compete in swimming. So I never even saw it as necessarily as part of a, that I could excel in those things either. My frame of reference at that time was so narrow, so narrow. And then it wasn't until I started, you know, I set a goal of wanting to do this 5K that I got a book and started like really researching. And then I was like, oh, wow, okay, so what is a triathlon and what distances does it include? And like, how do you do that? And you do it all back to back. And like, that I really learned, like, I was such a newbie. And this is all throughout my 20s. But it's because, once again, I didn't hang out with any athletes at that point, you know, prior to my accident, like it wasn't something that was in my vocabulary. And what was the progression for you in your running? Oh my goodness. It's kind of ridiculous because it just shows that, that sort of ambitious personality as well. And I think I didn't necessarily surround myself at that point with a lot of athletes either. 
I was pretty self-conscious because I was like, okay, like I'm just doing this to be healthy. But then I did that 5K and I was like, oh man, like I have to have another goal. Like I can't just, I'm one of those people too. Like I need to have goals on my calendar, on my horizon. I don't like to leave a blank and just see like, let's see what happens. That's not me. So I did that 5K and then I was like, okay, what's the next race that's happening in my city? So I went on like the race calendar and it said hypothermic half. And it was in February. And this was in Saskatchewan, Canada. So just above North Dakota. So like insanely cold in February, lots of snow. And it's funny because it was actually titled like the hypothermic half. I didn't know what half meant, right? I was like, oh, cool. It's a running race. Like that's, you know, I'm going to register for this thing. And Wait, had you ever run in the cold before? No, no, because I had just started. And my <laughs> yeah. first, like that 5K was in the fall. And then I learned, yeah, about this race. And I was like, okay. And I got every book about doing, once I figured out a half means half marathon. And that was like 21.1 kilometers or 13.1 miles, I think. I was like, okay, like I'm going to learn how to do this and do this really properly. And then did that first, my first half. Once again, loved it. The one thing I really started to feel is that Give me a 10K run any day and I'd be like, uh, but then give me anything longer than that. Then I was like, okay, like I get into a rhythm and I could just do it forever. That's what I felt from training for my first half marathon to this very day. Anything under an hour, I'm like, uh, I'm not feeling it, you know, but then anything over an hour, I'm like, yes, like I get settled in. I find a zone. I could just stay there forever is the feeling I have. And so as you can imagine, it just progressed. Like I did that half and then two months later, there was a marathon, started training for the marathon. That next year, I was kind of hooked on the marathon. I did a marathon a month for a year. And then I was started to really focus on like wanting to do an Ironman. And so then I started training for an Ironman, got into ultra marathons. Then I was like, you know, kind of how close can I do an ultra marathon, an Ironman together? And so I, you know, did back to back in one month, did an ultra marathon and an Ironman and like, just sort of like, it's, was just chaotic in terms of like how I like to create these little challenges that don't necessarily exist in other people's mind or like, you know, there's no awards or trophies for these things, but I'm like, okay, I want to set this little challenge. Can I do this and this within this time frame? So have you picked apart why you need to do the longer distance? Like, why is it that you don't like the 10 K distances and why you prefer the longer ones? One thing I've definitely done as I got more and more serious into the ultra extreme races is a lot of like exploring physiologically what's happening in my body that makes me potentially sort of more built for those things. Because of course I love doing it, but that's one thing. But there must be something that makes my body more capable of doing it. You know, I did one of those like balance points assessments that I think you had Dr. Andrew Sellers talking about. And through that, like really learn where my weaknesses are, but where my strengths are as an athlete that sort of leans me towards that. I am really good at recovery. That's one thing that I think makes a big difference and sort of has shaped some of the stuff that I do where I got into more stage races, but I'm really good at using oxygen as well. Basically, each breath I take in, I really use it because I hardly expel anything. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, the learning process, but I'm still learning, right? That's the trick. That's why I'm still at it because I'm still learning every time I set a new goal. So whenever you did your first Ironman, you did marathon, like a marathon a month is a lot. The books that you read tell you not to do that. So <laughs> why did you decide a marathon a month 
because you said that you also trying to be mindful about avoiding injury and avoiding setbacks. So how did you do a marathon per month and not get injured? So really, I had long-term goals going into that next year of looking at ultra marathons and, and doing Ironmans, which are well over the marathon distance. So it was actually part of my training plan. And at that point, too, I think a big thing, if I like anyone was saying they were going into doing a marathon a month, is being really specific about what your race goals are. And so in that time frame, like I wouldn't have every single one of those be my A race. I'd have like A races, maybe two or three A races, then B races, then C races. And it's more for the experience and really learning at that time is really learning about my body so that I had as much knowledge going into ultramarathons as I did sort of at that shorter distance. Okay. So then you did Ironman and what made you decide to do Ultraman and maybe define, cause like, I think a lot of people maybe are unsure what an ultramarathon is, what Ultraman is, and what some of the other okay. things we're going to talk about are. Yeah. So ultramarathons are really gaining in popularity in the past couple of years. A lot of people would say they're anything over a marathon, but interestingly enough, there's a lot of sort of debate. Some people say it's 50K or it's 50 miles, or some people say it has to be over that amount. I would say most people agree that like a 50 miler is considered an ultramarathon. And then really it goes up from there, right? There's 100 milers, 135 miles, 200 milers. And then there's your traditional Ironman. And now there's quite a few races out there that are sort of ultra triathlons. So two types of ones that are exist in North America. One is Ultraman. And so Ultraman is basically a three-day triathlon. And so the first day is a 10-kilometer swim followed by uh, just shy of an Ironman bike. So it's about 145K. And then the second day is a 270K road bike ride. And then on the third day is a double marathon. So like 84.4 kilometers. And then you have what are a series called the Anvils. And they're the double Ironman distance. And so you do back-to-back. like So you do the double swim, double bike, and then double run. And every moment counts. There is no sleeping at night like there is in an Ultraman. You actually, like you race for, usually you have 36 hours or 34 hours, depending on the complexity of the race course. So yeah, just to sum that up, well, I know about this because I know you, but before yeah. you, I didn't know about any of this stuff. Yeah. So an Ultraman is kind of like a stage race for triathlon where you do one sport per day, but you do like the double distance. You do like long distance each day. Yes. Whereas the double Ironman is, it's like a, doing an ultra endurance mountain bike race where it's like 24 hour racing or, or more. And, and it is more. Yes. Where you don't stop. You do the entire distance all at once. Yeah. So if you decide to sleep, then the, the clock is still ticking, right? If you take a 10 minute <laughs> nap or you know, sit down for a couple minutes to eat, like you're counting time. Yeah. So which ultra was your first? I start, I did a 50 miler in Texas. And then from there, like I did a couple 50 milers. But in terms of like my, I want to say like my real first ultra marathon experience that it was like a 24 hour race is called the Canadian Death Race. <laughs> Quite popular in Canada, has this really cool skull logo. And you actually run through Hell's Gate Mountain Passage. So it's three major mountains, 125 kilometers, but pretty like rugged. So yeah, you have about 24 hours to do it in. And it's in August in, yeah, in the Canadian Rockies. So that was my first foray into real endurance racing. And that was like, that's trail running? or Yeah, that's all trail running. Are all ultra marathons on trails? 
No, there are some road ones. The most common is trail, uh, just because of the distance and safety, because you run through the night and everything. It's, yeah, a lot of it's on trails, but there are a couple that are on road. So like from a preparation standpoint, like once you do some of these things, like you're still, like you said, you still learn every single race, but I'm sure the first one required the most amount of preparation and learning. So like, how did you learn what to do and how did you mentally prepare? Because I think it's more intimidating knowing that you're going to have to stay up and be moving your body for that long. So how did you get ready for that? That's an interesting question because the fact that it's really hard to replicate that other than in a race environment. So in preparation, right, were those 50, the 50 milers that I did was like really how I sort of built up uh, mostly the nutritional experience, getting to know like your gut and what you can take in a marathon is totally different than what you could take in an hour six or hour seven or hour eight of an endurance event especially with like when you're dealing with altitude and all of those different factors, right? And that's the cool thing about a lot of ultra marathons or these extreme races is that they have so many different environmental factors in each one of these that you just can't paint them all with one paintbrush, right? Like they are all so different. So in that one, that was probably like my least, the one that I had least experience going into was that very first 24-hour race because I just hadn't been on my on my feet for that long. Of course, I had built up with doing like an Ironman race in that sort of that, you know, you're going over 12 hours or 10 hours. I can't remember how long my first one was, but yeah, like you're going into that time frame that's way more than a marathon distance or a marathon time that I really, yeah, started to just take notes and like do as much as I could to understand how my body reacted underneath those conditions, especially the ebbs and flows. That's what's so fun and kind of crazy about ultra marathoning or ultra endurance events. You will go into these segments where you're like, okay, how much longer am I going to feel like this? Because you're going through whatever and it's holding on. And then in a half hour, you'll totally forget that you were even there, right? You'll be like, oh, like I feel good right now. And it's like, wait, wasn't it like a half hour ago that I was thinking I, you know, I'd be cramping on the side of the road or on this? Like, and no, it's amazing. Your body just goes with the flow in those races. That's amazing. So what do you eat though, whenever you're doing these running races? Cause like on the bike, I think nutrition is way easier on the bike than it is running just cause the jarring yeah. of running is a lot harder. So like, what do you eat for like a really long running race? It's different depending on the distance. So right now, like a lot of what I do is 24 to 48 hours in length. And that distance, it requires real food. That's the biggest thing, real food and the least amount of ingredients going into any one of those items, right? So I actually make a lot of my own food when possible. It's not always possible depending on where you're traveling to for these races. But if, I, if I'm making anything, it's like a bar or a recipe that will only have three or four items, in that recipe, right? And then it's really like getting fats, getting proteins, getting some sugars just to keep the fire going. But that's where I think it's really different than shorter distances where you're, a lot of people are like fueling on those, on the sugars, right? A lot of, for ultra marathoning and ultra extreme events are focusing on that sort of that fat and protein, the long, slow burn, because you're going to be out there for a while. So after you did the hell race, what was next? From there, oh, the death, death race. Yeah, the death Sorry, race. Death and yeah. hell. It's no. the same kind of thing. <laughs> Once again, I learned so much from that experience. 
and I had takeaways. And of course, I wanted to be able to know that I learned from those takeaways. And from there, I really, I wanted to see how my body would react in like the different extremes. Because once again, it'd be a totally different learning experience. So I had heard from a really close friend about an ultra marathon that went through the Canadian Arctic. It's called the Rock and Ice Ultra. And it was held north of Yellowknife. So just sort of south of the Arctic Circle and in the middle of winter. And you had to carry like 24 hours of supplies with you in case you got stranded out there. And so that was one goal I had. And then the following race I did after that was, it's called the Route of Fire through Costa Rica. And it was, I believe, six or seven day stage race. And every day included a volcano, which is why it was called the Route of Fire. So you like, and you had to, you were sleeping out on the course each night. You had sort of an action packer that you had to fit everything in and and you camped each night wherever it was on the race course. And so those two races were like this really foray into the extremes for me. I had to do so much research to learn about how to race in such cold conditions, how to race in such hot conditions, and how my body would react in those two different types of environments. All the other, you know, like going up into the Arctic, you had to, your entire nutritional plan you had to totally revamp just based on what would freeze and like what won't freeze and what's edible at when it's frozen and what's not edible. Water? Like, did you add anything to keep your water from freezing? Um, no, I didn't add anything to my water. I'm actually kind of funny that way. And actually a lot of women, female athletes are like, it's amazing how many female athletes you talk to who can't stomach a lot of sports drinks. And that's one thing that I quickly learned about myself. Like if you, any race you see me on, you know, the only thing I'll be drinking is water. And then I get my electrolytes through like salt tablets. But I have never actually added anything to, I've tried, but nothing ever like worked. But just investing in like crazy good thermoses that basically people that work in the diamond mines use was sort of the trick to keep my water not freezing up and having it like close to my body as well really helped too. But yeah, those two extremes are, are a good example of how I got started into like, because then I was like, okay, like what other extremes are there for these races? And like, I got to, I got to get on these. Like I want to explore them more and see what else I'm capable of. Because through this journey, every time I walked away from one of those events, I was on an utter high of how much I took away from it and how much stronger I felt. Every time I walked, like, you know, some people are at that point where they're like, I would never do that again. Like the day after a race, I have never been like that. I've never said that after a race. I've always been like, okay, what's next? What's more extreme so that I can learn even more and try what I just learned from this and use what I learned from this as well. If something went really well, what can I take away from it? Right? Like it was just this constant learning process and all based on the fact that I just felt stronger and stronger each race I walked away from. Stronger physically or mentally? Both. I would yeah. say, yeah, definitely like both. Because out there, you're so isolated in a lot of those races. And this was, before, you know, like I said, ultramarathon is becoming quite popular now. But, you know, we're talking eight years ago in some of these races and, and there, were, there weren't that many people. And so you were so isolated out there, especially in races like in that Arctic race where you could not see, you wouldn't see someone for six hours at a time. And you're just plugging away in your own brain 
And when you spend that much time in your own brain and you're like going through these pretty drastic highs and pretty drastic lows, that you're really starting to just get comfortable in that mindset. And you're walking away more in touch with yourself and feeling, I always felt physically stronger as well. And I think oddly enough too, like more connected with the important things and people in my life too, because it really helped me prioritize when you're training that many hours, right? What was important and what wasn't important. And in those extremes, I mean, we're talking extreme discomfort or extreme being extremely hot or extremely cold. How do you deal with it in that moment? Oh, one thing is that because I am really focused on lifelong learning, then anything I go into, you can guess that I probably have a spreadsheet for the race I probably have spent any free time reading about the environment and the conditions and what to do in all of these different types of scenarios. And I have the, like, I'll go into a race and I'm like, I'll be nervous. I'll be really nervous going into a race. And people, people will say like, you know, but you love it. Like, why are you getting so nervous? And I'm like, don't worry. Like, this is the fuel for the fire. Because like, once I get started, then like all those nerves go away because chances are I have thought of every possible scenario and how to deal with it before I go into the race, right? And so it's that mental prep in addition to the physical prep that I head into those that um, it's a huge confidence booster when that start gun goes off, right? I'm like, okay, I can handle this cold. I can, I know what to do when I start to feel these things, right? Heat training, you know, I learned so much about heat training. One thing, like I do a lot of coaching of endurance athletes and sort of extreme athletes at this point in my career. And a lot of them, before they come to me, they'll say, well, you know, in this past race, I really didn't do well in the heat. And that's why I did so poorly, right? And I'll be like, okay, well, did you train for the heat? And they'll be like, well, well no. And I'm like, okay, that's the number one thing that we're going to start to do. Like, I am all about training for the environmental because you can. Like, I firmly believe that you can train for the environmental circumstances that are out there. And so, so being able to, yeah, learn about heat training and then execute a good heat training plan and then go to a place like Costa Rica or somewhere where the temperature difference was so massive for me coming from Saskatchewan. It was like 60 degree difference at that point. And being able to win the race, that's ideal, right? Ideal circumstances of just being able to train for those environments. So to answer your question, yeah, I really, I try not to see those things as necessarily big challenges. It's just the factors that make that race what it is and preparing for those before you get to the race. But there has to be things that happen in the race that you couldn't possibly have anticipated oh, yeah. or that happened. So <laughs> for sure. in that moment when you're like, crap, like I over, I analyzed every possible yeah. scenario, this has happened, or I'm so uncomfortable, I want to quit. Where do you find the will to continue? That's definitely a good point and good question. I think of one race in particular, it's called Sinister 7 through the Canadian Rockies again. And... It has seven huge mountain passes and a a cloud system and storm system sort of came in in the middle of the night, right when I was on the peak of this one mountain. And I just got socked in by clouds and my headlamp, it's like in the middle of the night, my headlamp's not throwing any light. And I remember hitting a rock and then hearing the rock fall (laughs) and realizing that like I was basically on the spine of the mountain and I just dropped my knees, felt by my hand and could feel like the drop off on either side. 
And I was like, okay, I have about a, you know, like an eight foot range here of like possibly running off the side of this mountain. And I was not prepared for that. I remember the first thought I thought of was my parents because my parents are huge supporters. They're always like, they're not even good at technology, but they're so good at online trackers now because so many of these races have trackers. They know how to use all those different systems so that they can follow me through whatever race and whatever country. And I thought, ooh, my mom would not like this right now. She would not like knowing that I'm on this edge of the mountain and can't see anything in all these clouds. And there were moments where it's like, oh, like this is not what I signed up for. This is like really, really dangerous. And I'm not prepared for this because there was nothing I could do to fix that scenario. But it was also this alternative of like, what is my other option right now, right? Like, I can't just make a phone call and be like, yeah, come get me. Like, <laughs> the only way I can get out of this is, you know, the way I got into it. And that's using my mental strength and my physical strength to just persevere and knowing that in a half hour, my scenario is going to look really different than what it is at this moment, right? And just trying not to dwell in that current thought if it's a negative thought and just going to that positive space. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to be laughing about this tomorrow and just be smart right? Don't take unnecessary risks and just get there as safely as possible. And it'll be a good story later on. So basically, and these are the things that I use as well, is embracing impermanence, that it's not going to last forever yeah. and always moving forward. Yes. Yeah. But it still doesn't fix the fact that sometimes you do have those negative thoughts or you feel grumpy mm -hmm. or you feel cold or whatever, but yeah. it sounds like you just say, I'm just going to accept this and I'm not going to fight it. I'm just yeah. going to keep moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I always say to myself too is that like, even through nerves, because sometimes I sign up for these things and they scare the crap out of me. Like there are moments and I thought, I always go back and say at one moment, probably when you press checkout on your registration page, at one moment you believed you could do this, right? And you have to go back to that and be like, whenever you start doubting yourself, at one moment you believed you could do this and you signed up for that or you set that goal and you have to go back to that and go to that person, go to that mindset and work through it and just be that person until you get past that moment because, and then you'll be back there. You'll be back to that mindset. I love that. So you step into the identity that you want to have. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually yeah. really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> cool. So like you did all these ultra running races, but how did you start doing these ultra triathlons or did the ultra triathlons come before the ultra running race? No, really the ultra running came first. I was doing, as mentioned, Ironmans at that time. And then I started to learn more about what was out there for ultra triathlons. And I was definitely interested in ultra swimming and ultra cycling, but wasn't quite sure how to navigate towards those sports. And I thought the ultra triathlons would help get me there training wise. So I set my goal on my first Ultraman and it was a crazy cool experience. I loved it. It really, if people aren't good at recovery, then it's certainly a challenge because of the fact that it, you have three days, you sleep at nighttime, but if you don't use that time wisely, then it really beats people up. Like in the Canadian Ultraman, and actually, if you look at most Ultramans overall, most of the DNFs come on the last day. And it's because of the fact that people have struggled to recover from, from their, the multiple days of impact. But then once I had done a couple of those races, I looked at the ultramarathons and I was really doing a lot of the 24 to 48 hour races. 
at that point. And I was fascinated what sleep deprivation would do in an ultra triathlon. And that's when I found out about like the Anvil series that are in the United States. Well, actually, ultra triathlons are huge in Europe and they're just sort of gaining popularity. There's three of them in the United States right now. And I was keen to do one of those because I thought like, wow, like factoring in basically doing a triathlon for potentially up to 36 hours and factoring in sleep deprivation. And I wanted to get into ultra cycling, like ultra road cycling, but really wanted to see like, yeah, how do you deal with riding throughout the night? And like, I fall asleep running all the time in those, you know, in a, not all the time, but, but in those ultra marathons, there are certainly times of the like four o'clock in the morning where you start to kind of like doze and you're nothing is really going to happen to you. But when you start to doze on a road bike on a road at four o'clock in the morning or three o'clock in the morning, like that's a different factor, right? So I was so interested in getting to know how I could get through one of those races and do well in one of those races and train to bike through the night. And so then I set my goal on doing the, the Anvil series. So the double Ironman, not long after doing Ultraman races. Which you've won twice. Yes. The double Anvil, which is yes. awesome. Congratulations. Yes. And you know what's so cool? Once again, I find it very inspiring and motivating is that in running, ultra running, and really running overall, it's, you are seeing like there's, the longer the races, the more potential a woman has of being on the podium overall, where what, the shorter distances, it's very complicated to ever, ever have that scenario, just physically, right? Like male marathoners tend to like just be built to be faster than a woman marathoner. But the longer the distance, the more equal level playing ground it is. And that's one thing I started to see in Ultraman. And then I really see it in the double Ironman event. So, so the, my first double Ironman event, I ended up fourth overall. And then the other ones, like I took first, yeah, first female, but had the run course record for the one race I did, like where I, I think I had beat the first place man by like <laughs> almost a half hour. Yes. And you know, like, it's crazy. Like it is really, really, really cool. And you're starting to see that more in the news too, where we're really celebrating like the fact that we have women that are winning these ultra events overall. And it's just the, our physiology is, works really, really well for the long endurance events, right? And so it's cool that we're seeing like more of a level playground in there. It, it just like sky's the limit, right? Yeah, and I, I think this is interesting. And this is a question that I wanted to ask you is in a lot of the long, longer distance, I mean, you see this in mountain biking too. Like there's way less women in the hundred mile race yeah. and there's the 50 mile race. And I'm sure it's the same in all the different, yes. um, and yours are way more extreme than what I'm doing. So why do you think it is that there are less women, like the longer it gets, if women compared to men are become more equals in terms of ability? Oh, that's a really good question. I don't have the answer for it. I can make like guesses though. I think, I mean, we see less and less women who continue into sports as adults, right? Just for a variety of conflicting life experiences that that sort of draw it away. And I think too, like so many women felt like how I did in high school and just like sports was this thing that put a lime or like a spotlight on you in a way that made you feel insecure and a time that you were insecure in your body in the first place. And then you attribute it to a negative, a negative thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I just see our numbers dwindling because of that going into adulthood. 
And that we are starting to see like more and more women get into, especially like the half marathon distance. You across the United States, if you start to really look at numbers, we have more women doing half marathons in a lot of a lot of the races than we do actually have men, right? So I feel like our numbers are going to start to climb. We I am seeing more and more women in ultra marathons, and I hope you know there's a lot doing 50k, 50 milers. I would love to see our numbers increase in the 100 miler. I do believe it's going to get there. And I do believe we're going to start to see more and more women do the ultra triathlons and do the longer distances that way. It's just going to take some time. And I think we're just, we're changing how we look at physical activity and what it means to be comfortable in your body. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a difficult question to yeah. answer. Like there isn't an answer because it's like, well, why, why wouldn't you just sign up for the longer distance? Yeah. And, you and I are kind of the people that would say, yeah, like if there's a longer mm-hmm. distance, op- like if there's a 200 mile mountain bike race, I would be signing up for the 200 mile distance. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if it's that people just don't want to be out there that long and it just doesn't sound fun or they don't, maybe the training is too much or maybe it just, yeah, maybe it just doesn't sound fun. Yeah. But it's like, no, it is fun. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, what's a weird thing and I don't want to make it sound whiny, but it is a weird thing that like, of course, tons of these athletes that I have got to know and have raced with all over the world are males. The Most of them are, just because that's how the numbers are in these races, right? And I feel like I see more haters on social media and in just in life in general for females doing these things than males. And it tends to like responsibilities. It, one of the first things that people want to know is like, oh, well, do you have a job? Well, do you have a spouse? Well, do you, you know, what about your, like, do you have a house? Like, do you have kids? Do you have like, it's like these questions of all these responsibilities that you have that you must be missing out on or not taking care of where like, I don't see a lot of my male counterparts, like get the same kind of questions on social media Mm -hmm. as like I do. If I posted a picture, you know, going away. And once again, like, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining, but it's just a It is a noticeable thing that there is a sense of responsibility that I think women are supposed to have. And maybe, I don't know, like seeing pictures of us playing in the dirt isn't (laughs) isn't okay with some people. It seems like naturally, and I I don't know, like I'm sure this isn't the case for everybody, but everybody always just says, well, women just tend to do more. They do more around the house, even if they work full time, even if they have a kid, even if they're an athlete. Like, yeah, we still... take on more responsibilities. Yeah, and and I don't know why that is, but it just is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Odd. anyway, that's kind of a side tangent, but I think it's just an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, you know, it brings me back to one of my favorite moments, though, that I really started to realize how big sports were in my life. I was coming back from, it was actually from that race in Costa Rica. And I just had this like crazy cool experience running across Costa Rica, you know, like on a volcano where it was actually like spitting rocks. And I was just like, I just felt like on top of the world, you know, I was so scratched up from like running through parts of the jungle and stuff like that. But like, I, you know, was sitting in an airport, I think it was in Denver. And one of my coworkers texted me and she's like, oh, you know, like, how are you feeling about like coming back to real life? And that comment, I would just like, it gave me like goosebumps. Cause I thought, you know what? That's not real life. Like I just lived real life. Yeah. We put like, okay, I guess she's assuming like I have all these emails to catch up on and I have all this paperwork on my desk and I have all of this stuff, but like, that is not my real life. That is, that's obstacles or like stuff that keeps me busy in a job that I like. 
but that's not, uh, like real life is about like, yeah, focusing on just like your breathing and your nutrition and sleeping and like keeping yourself going through whatever it is that you're going through. Right. And so like coming out of this race, like I just felt so in tune with so many things in my body and just like living on the edge, like completely. And I'm like, that was, that felt real. That felt like real life <laughs> and sort of like all this list of to do's that I'm going to give myself when I get back to work. Like, I don't think that's really real life. You know, that's just a part of life. And, to, you know, how I keep busy during those hours or that segment of my life. But I feel like I know better about what living is about. Yeah. And I think it's like, how do you benchmark the important things that happen yeah. in your life. So like at the end of the day, if you look back and say, well, what am I most proud of in my life? And this will be different for everybody. Like it doesn't have to be a sport or an extreme event, but yeah. it's really like being intentional about those things that really do matter to you and that mean the most to you and yeah. trying to maximize doing those things. So how did you progress from there? Because it, it's an interesting thing as an endurance, especially an ultra endurance athlete, because you always need another challenge and the challenges just kept getting bigger and bigger and yeah. bigger. So like, how did you progress from doing double Ironmans, Ultramans, like all the hardest, like ultra running races around the world? Yeah. That was sort of the thing was to take on some of the big famous challenges out there for ultra running. And so my goal was to do Marathon de Sabla, which is across the Sahara desert. And then really building up my resume my race resume by doing a lot of these extreme races, doing lots of hundred mile races so that I could put in an application into the Badwater 135, which is known as the toughest foot race on earth. And that's the one that goes through Death Valley. It's held on the anniversary of the hottest day ever recorded on earth. You start at the lowest point in the United States, which is Badwater Basin, and the highest in the lower United States, which is uh, Mount Whitney. And you do all of that in 48 hours on foot. And that was like a huge goal of mine was to even, I mean, it took basically a couple of years just to get a resume, my application strong enough to apply and then get into that race and do those races. So it was pretty cool. Now, I want to talk about the Badwater specifically because I remember when I first met you, you were doing Badwater and we were getting our orthotics made in the same place, the same guy. And he was telling me, oh yeah, like I'm working on Stacy's, the material for Stacy's orthotics so they don't melt. I was like, what is he talking about? Like your shoes melt in a running race? So yeah, yeah can you talk about your preparation for Badwater and what that whole experience was like? Yeah, so that was actually, that would have been the second time I did that race. So I actually went back and did it again. But the first time I did the race, like there had only been a handful of Canadian women that had ever gone. And so I was really like, I took it really seriously that I got in. I thought it would take me a couple of years to get in. And, and I got in on that first application and I was just over the moon. Like I was so excited, but so nervous and scared at the same time that I really took my training seriously. So one thing I trained in Saskatchewan, it's very flat, lots of long highways. And it's one thing I saw lots of pictures of with Badwater are these highways that you could just, you could see basically 50 kilometers or you could see for 60 kilometers down that one road. And that's all you would be looking at. And the one thing is famous on, at Badwater is the runner basically in a white suit running on the white painted line of the highway because of the fact that if you step off the painted line, 
your shoes start to melt way faster on the black asphalt or pavement than they would on the painted line. So you see these runners running on that painted line. And it's all true. You do run on the painted line. I went through each race. I went through like three pairs of running shoes just because they melt. And so like on that line, you could just see forever. So I trained like on these highways where I had no music and I just had to be in my own brain and see exactly where I was going for the next four or five hours. Lots of training runs like that. I re- Wait, how do you, but how do you like actually get okay with that? I'm asking for myself because I've done some, some mountain bike races where you don't see anything and I, I couldn't stand it. And I just had to look at the ground and I, cause I could not bring myself to look up and see nothing again. Well, I mean, I really ebb and flow into my different mindsets. So one thing I find interesting is if I can't use headphones in a race, then like you guarantee me, like guaranteed that year, you will never see me with headphones in. Like I will not allow myself that distraction because if I'm not going to have it on race day, I'm not going to use it in training because it's not going to help prepare me for that experience, right? And so I have gotten really, really, really good at being able to turn like have my brain on and thinking about whatever, right? Like training runs, like I get tons of amazing thoughts for work and like, you know, brainstorming. I always full of ideas. But then at the same time, I've actually got to the point where I know if I'm getting into a negative like mindset or something's going to get really tough where I could just turn things off. And I just go into almost this like autopilot and I just don't let myself think about anything. I'll be like, nope, just like footsteps, breathing, that's it block everything else out. It's almost like a meditative state where it's like, I will not let any, like a thought enters. I'm like, nope, not right now. Cause I can't, you know, I don't need that in what's going on. And so that is when like, I'll, I'll be able to like, just practice like turning my brain off during certain times and knowing that that is part of a strategy and that's going to get me somewhere, but it's just like, it's not going to help me to be thinking about whatever at this moment. Cause I'm not maybe thinking as clear or as positive as I want to be. Yeah. And just be able to like switch on and off. I think <laughs> the amazing thing about the bad water and, uh, and most of these races you're doing is that most people quit. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you attribute to being able to finish? I mean, we've talked about a lot of the different mindset things and your pre-race preparation, but is there like a uniting thing that's helped you not quit oh. these races? I am an extremely stubborn individual. I think that helps a lot. I think anyone that knows me knows that I'm really stubborn. But it's calculated at the same time. Like, I've been really lucky. But at the same time, I think my level of training that I put into these things, and especially the environmental, I researched so much about heat training going into bad water. And a lot of, like, that is what's going to take people out, is them not being prepared for the heat. It, the record I think was at like 135 Fahrenheit. And there were times that we hit in the high fifties Celsius in like when I was racing, just cause I don't work in Fahrenheit. So <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it was hot. It was like in the one twenties, I guess, uh, high one twenties. And it is ridiculous. And we had so many tough, close moments in that race, but it's once again, not letting that moment define you and just being like, okay, like have a plan, react to everything. So one thing that was so different for me as an athlete, and it was really altering for me as an athlete, was that as I mentioned earlier, I was, have always been like fiercely independent. And especially being an ultra endurance athlete, where 
my training does not match what any one of my friends' training is going to be doing, right? So I'm, I'm alone. I'm training alone. I'm training by myself. I'm anal about my training to the point where it's like, I won't give up a workout just to be social. If I need to get this workout done, I need to get this workout done. And if it means I don't see people for and get to train with people for half a year, that's the case, right? And I'm just, I'm okay with that. Because of that, though, your solitude, like you're, you're pretty much in solitude a lot of times. And in these races, like you're, you're by yourself. And this was the first race where I had to have a crew. And I trained for that race with this idea of, oh, I need to know I can do this completely on my own, right? And like, because I'm independent and like, this was my race that I wanted to do. And all my other ultra marathons had been totally on my own, no crew, even like in 100 milers, I never use a crew. I always just have drop bags. I've never used a pacer, any of those things. Because I want to know I can get through it. And it's, you know, I didn't want to tie people into something that was my goal or my race. And with bad water, like you have to have a crew. The first time I did it, it was a crew of uh, six. And the second time I did it, it was a crew of four. They had changed the rules between the two years that I had done it. And... I just thought, okay, well, they're kind of going to be there for decoration. Like I don't, you know, I'm not really going to rely on them. And, you know, I don't want to rely on them. And all my training was done just with this idea that I'm going to get it done on my own. But then you get there and you realize how many obstacles there are and how many challenges there are in terms of the environment and all these different factors. And it is also like, it's a 48 hour race. You go through so much that is like intense and beautiful and challenging and crazy. And these people like validated the experience. First of all, it made me a better communicator. I've always been someone who didn't want to whine or complain. And as soon as you noticed something in bad water, they teach you that like with heat, the moment you notice something's changing in your body, like you got to let someone know because it gets out of control so fast. And you could be on the side of the road, not knowing who you are, where you are, and you are nowhere close to a hospital. Like in the middle of Death Valley, right? And so you got to stay on top of things. And so I had to basically learn how to communicate with these people, like exactly how I was feeling at all times. It's also vulnerability yeah, too. totally like, vulnerable. Because you don't, like, sometimes you don't even want to admit to yourself, like whenever no. I've had, like, I've actually admit that I've never done heat preparation and yeah. I didn't even know about that until I met you. Yeah. And I've had many heat issues where it's like, I probably should have quit yeah. But I didn't even realize what was going on. Yeah. And, and I wouldn't even admit it to myself. Yeah. So like being able to be vulnerable in that situation would be really yeah. hard. Yeah. Like it taught me that. Like it, that was more so than almost anything else in my life up to that date, like taught me how to be vulnerable. Like I had to be able to say to these people, you know what? I'm kind of feeling this. And we needed a plan right then and then to take that on. And then it like cleared my mind. Okay, this is good. Now we're on to something else. And it was always just like, we we're reacting to all these different things that could happen over 48 hours which was such a fascinating process. It's a crazy environment. And when you, when I finished that race, the closest place we fly out of is Vegas. You go to this like absolute isolation of Death Valley and then you go to Vegas and I'm there <laughs> with my crew. And I remember checking into the hotel and they asked me my email address. And I, I was like, email, hmm. I think I have one of those. Like I couldn't even like I had gotten so far mentally removed from like how, you know, those type of things going through this race. Like it was just all encompassing. And for weeks after that race, my crew and I would just kept texting each other about different experiences we had because 
it was the first time I ever felt like I had those people with me every step of the way, right? Like they saw those things where I'm so used to like, you know, races in the Arctic where there's no one around. I could tell people these stories of what the Northern Lights, you know, by the Arctic Circle look like. And like, nobody really understands it, right? Except if you were there. And those people were like, they're with me, right? And so it just brought it to a whole new level that was really, 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 really cool. That's what I like the best about some of the stage ra- mountain bike stage races where you have a teammate because I'm like you, I'm always alone. And to be able to share that with somebody is, is pretty neat. Yeah, it so changes it. I wanted to ask you though about quitting because this is something that I'm not very smart about. I'm stubborn like you. Like there are times in races where you probably should quit because your health or you are in danger. Yeah. So how do you know when to quit? Oh, yeah. I have one race on the mind that where I did have to quit. Actually, that like the race, this wasn't the year I did, obviously, but the race just happened. It's called Arrowhead. It's in northern states. And you pull a sled. Like it's like of all your supplies for about like you need supplies for about three days and you have a sled attached to you and you pull it through the snow. And it was re ridiculously cold snap when I did it and a whole bunch of snow fell. So it was just wreaking havoc on all of the athletes. And I got through the beginning of that first night. I got through all the first day, that first night. And then I actually came upon a racer who had like stopped and like basically like froze onto like a log in the middle of this forest And these other racers came up too. And we were like, well, someone has to help him. And we're like, yeah. And we tried to even like get our radios like out of our pocket. And like your fingers would just freeze so quickly. Like I believe it was like in the minus 40s, if not minus 50s during the race. Like it was crazy cold. And I was able to finally get to like, it took me probably half hour to make the call to get this guy help where like, I could feel like my fingers were freezing that quickly. Like it was just crazy and got the guy help. And they said, yeah, like you got to keep them moving because we can't get to you. We can't get the snowmobiles going in that cold. And so you got to get to the closest highway, which is probably going to be another three hours. So then I was like, I'm going to stick with this guy because this is life. You know, no matter what goal there is at the end or like prize there might be like, you know, this is someone's health and life. And I knew I was on the brink at that point as well of quitting. And I ended up, yeah, like by the time I got to that highway, I knew how dangerous things were and how much it would cost me going forward in terms of recovery. And I was just like, you know what? This is not worth it right now. And the hardest thing is being okay with quitting because you always question whether it was good enough reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Did I have the good enough reasons to quit? And no one's going to know that. That's the one thing is no one's going to know that except for you. And people feel this responsibility with social media, with friends and family, where it's like, you're going to have to try and explain this. But going back to that bad water thing, you were the only one that was there. You're the only one that knew. But the more extreme the races are, the more variables there are and the higher risks. Your basic 5K race or 10K race, the DNF level of rate numbers are pretty low because it has minimal amount of risk, right? But it can be like a full-on crapshoot in a lot of these ultra-endurance events because there's so many things that can happen. I, you know, I did, I've done a lot of racing in the Alps in Europe where like big storms have come through 
And they've rerouted the course by like 30 kilometers, like adding 30 kilometers in the middle of a race, you know? And like, that's something, you know, like I talk about planning, but there's going to be things that you can't necessarily like plan for. And it's just how you react in those moments, right? That you, I think you can plan for is how you react in those moments. And it doesn't mean you're going to be able to mentally get through each one of them. Sometimes there are going to be things that just make it a stop, make it a like a no-go zone. This isn't safe for me. This is risking my next race or my, the rest of my year or my health for however long. And you got to make that call and only you can do it. Yeah. That's so hard to know where that line is. Yeah, it is. I have one more question for you. And it seems, and, and I don't know if this is a true statement, but it's just my perception is yeah. it just seems like women in general in ultra endurance sports do not get the same airtime that men get or just women in general in sports, but like, especially in, in what you're doing, like I've heard about all these men who have like done bad water or done Ultraman and na na na. And that's awesome. And like, they're inspiring many and it's good for them. But like, why aren't we hearing from the women? Oh, good question. I mean, I, I don't really know the answer to that. Um, like, is it media? Is it, is like, what is it? I feel like as our numbers grow and we have more representation in those races, then you will hear more from those people. Maybe it's all the other responsibilities like we were talking about. Mm -hmm. That could be a factor. I think overall I'm a positive person and that's something I feel positive about. Like, I feel like we are heading in the right direction. The ultra community is actually quite small. So I have some really good friends who have written books and I am seeing like more of the, the ultra female athletes like coming out with books that are getting them, getting them some attention, getting them that media time. You know, it's funny though, too, because I feel like a lot of us are pretty diverse. I've had friends say to me, well, if you just stuck to like maybe just ultra running and just did all these crazy ultra runs, then like you could write this book on this. But it's like, I'm all over the place because I love like the ultra triathlons. I love ultra cycling. I love ultra running. I like, you know, like it's just this like scope of all these different extremes. And I feel like a lot of us are still on this journey. We don't feel like we've got to a point where we've like completed things and can write like a memoir or, you know, yeah. something like that. Like it's always like, well, there's something next and there's something next. And I also feel like a lot of the ultra endurance, like athletes I know are high achievers. And because of that, yeah, we're always looking about like our next year of races and our year after that and our year after that. And it's like, no, no, I'm not done yet. Like I don't, I can't summarize like what I've done just yet. Like I still have all this other stuff that I want to do. Right. Cause it's like, you know, addictive personality in that way. I'm addicted to races. <laughs> yeah, I think that also just just through talking, like maybe more women would be doing these races if there was more content either self-generated or yeah. third-party generated that other women are doing these races. Yeah. And also women racing truly inspire men to do races too. And I think that yeah. that's something that gets left out is a lot of times people think, well, men inspire men and women inspire women. But I know, I know that's not the case. Yeah, yeah. Well, and to go on what you're just saying too, like... It is unfortunate the lack of research that exists around like female athletes, especially the longer distance. Like there's not a lot of research out there at all. And so when you're trying to learn more about your body and what you're, what you're capable of doing and you're looking into reading, it's hard when it's all male focused, right? And so like having some female focused research out there could be really beneficial you know, I know that there's some really good resources out there, like the book Roar, which you had mentioned to me before, where it is focusing on, 
female. Once again, we don't get a lot of the ultra endurance stuff, but steps in that right direction where we have more resources out there available so that I think more and more women would get into it. And then there's a wider audience. Awesome. Well, I think I would, if you, if you're up for it, I'd love to have Mm -hmm. you back on the show to go specifically into like how you train for heat, how you train for altitude, like all the how to's. Um, today I really wanted you to be able to like tell some of your stories, but I think that there's a lot of really interesting kind of coaching information that people would love to hear from you. I love it. And also before you take off, you are the assistant, is it assistant to the director of Badwater now? Yes. Yes. So I, I mean, I fell in love with that race so much and now I can't imagine not spending a summer in Death Valley. And it's like a family (laughs) reunion because all the ultra athletes kind of get together in that Valley to do that, that run. Right. And so Chris Kosman, who is the Badwater race director and the Adventure Corps race director. So he has races kind of all over the world coming up. I am his assistant for for Badwater. It's amazing experience just because, yeah, it's a big part of my heart now, Death Valley and that race. Yeah. Cool. Where can people get in touch with you? So I coached with uh, Balance Point Racing. So through there, my nickname is actually like Racy Stacy, which was from a friend back when I first started getting into ultra running. And so my email is uh, racy at balancepointracing.com. So you can find it on that website. And that's probably the best way to get in touch with me. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as well. Ultra Stacy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Racy Stacy, there you have it. Does that make you want to sign up for Badwater or Double Ironman Triathlon? It's kind of fun to listen to the different things that people do because before I met Stacy, I had never even heard of any of these things. And now sometimes I think about doing it. And in particular, whenever I think about expanding my ultra endurance horizons, I really am interested and curious about ultra running and trail running. And there's a a running race in Squamish last year. I was out just on a ride and it was called the Squamish 50. And it was a 50 mile trail running race. And I just couldn't believe what people were running. I couldn't believe how far and the distance and how long people were out there. And it made me want to do it for some reason. So that's kind of in the back of my mind for someday. Thanks again for listening to the show, you guys. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.